and welcome to Mostly Film. I am one of your hosts, Jonathan McWhorter, joined by my beautiful co-host, J.P. Payton. What's up? Listen, today is a monumentous day. Today is a beautiful Thursday. Today is one of the most important days of my entire life because my life has changed. And I'm saying it on the record. I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think it was ever going to be achieved. But Terry Gilliam has one-upped himself. Really? The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus was, it still is, one of my all-time favorite films. Yeah. And it was hands down my favorite Terry Gilliam film that I've seen so far. And I've seen most of his filmography. Uh, cleaning up the loose ends with this re- in review series. Uh, but The Fisher King, which we're about to talk about, yeah. it did it. It did it. It did the damn thing. It is now my new favorite Terry Gilliam film and has solidified itself as one of my all-time favorite films. Wow. Now, with that said, I would do like to go on to preference or preface that Ooh. I think the Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus is infinitely more rewatchable for me okay. than the Fisher King uh, in terms of something I can just turn on in the background and watch. It's just Parnassus on the Fisher King is just more lighthearted, I guess. Yeah. And but something about the Fisher King. Well, first of all, I didn't realize how highly lauded and touted it was. Yeah. Um, which we'll, we'll get into that. But like, I just wanted to go ahead and start by saying that like Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus got freaking leapt over. It happened. I did not think this was possible. And I haven't told Tanner yet. I did tell him that it's one of my new all-time favorite films, which I gave it five stars. You gave it four. Yeah. But And it's also one of my all-time favorite Robin Williams films. Like, this movie is so damn good, and it's a travesty that I think it's underseen. I mean, I don't hear of anybody talking about The Fisher King, ever. I I see it, like, on different streaming services. I It was on Tubi right now, and I think it's about to leave Tubi again. Yeah, today somewhere or else. Yeah. yeah. And so, but I remember seeing this on, like, HBO for the longest time. Like, this has been something that's been, like, advertised to me. Mm-hmm. It'd show up on my, like, you know, top top 10 for you or whatever. Um, whatever the algorithm kind of yeah. works up to, to throw your way. Um. So I've I've known this has kind of been because if we're just talking about Terry Gilliam movies, this is probably a more accessible one as this compared is like to his some probably of the other most ones. mainstream film. Yes. Um this and actually probably Time Bandits would actually be probably the two most mainstream Time films. Time Bandits is the most like critical, like or not critical, but like uh like your movie stops. Have seen Time Bandits. Yeah, it's like a culturally iconic yes. film. Which cultural, Brazil cultural, is, yes. Brazil is too. That's like his most touted film. Yeah. But something about Time Bandits and The Fisher King, Fisher King being his most like Hollywood heavyweight supported film. And yeah, then, Fisher, yeah. And then this Time Bandits being his most universally accepted beloved film, yeah. probably. Yes. Blockbuster, like a more blockbuster type movie. And then you got 12 Monkeys, which is next week. Yeah. That one is like his most universally like cult classic film. Mm, and it's like wait. supposedly one of the greatest sci fi films ever made. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and Monty Python's also, he, that's, that's what I love about Terry Gilliam, man's a journeyman of, of, of creativity because Monty Python, The Holy Grail is one of the most iconic comedy films. 12 Monkeys, one of the most iconic sci-fi films. The Fisher King, just one of the most iconic, like, and brilliant, just dramatic films. Time Bandits is like a, just a classic, classic gotcha. film, like an adventure <laughs> film. And then you have like, um, there's one more I was just thinking of, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is like a, a just cult classic. So Terry Gilliam, man, I, I know we were talking about this on the pre-show here, uh, that Patreon tier, um, that you think so far we're starting, we're on now the downward slope of Gilliam here. We've got a few weeks left of yeah. it. Um, you're thinking he's going to end up as a four star director for you. If you were giving him a letterbox rating. Yeah. And, and we can get into it later as far as like my, my quote unquote issues with it all. They're not bad. It's just, you know, it 
just a lack of diversity, basically, um, in, in some you mean ways. Lack of diversity. Each He's, film is wildly he, different. He paints with a broad stroke, but he only paints with broad strokes. I think the Fisher King breaks that mold as a I, one-off. I think there are issues there, and we can yeah, hold we'll it talk until we get to the movie. Yeah. But I like four stars. Like, like that's pretty dang consistent. Like, I feel like I've been. You know, you said you told me before, like your list is very razor thin. Like, like yeah, my well, rating, like yes. my like my lowest rating is a four star. Yeah, so, and that's Tideland. Yeah, um, and well, and Time Bandits, they're both four stars. But like ranking them though is like the four star, like they're inner for what just from what we've watched so far, which is now the Fisher King, Time Bandits, Imaginary Doctor Parnassus, the Zero Theorem, Brazil, yeah. and um. Tideland. Yeah. Those are all, I'm telling you, like interchangeable based on the day, except for the top two. Gotcha. The Fisher King and Parnassus are my firmly solidified as one and two. But, and like now the Fisher King is a distant yeah. one. Like that one, this movie, I'm telling you, I let's just jump into it. Like the Fisher King is one of the best films I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay. So, Break down why, like, because you said this this leap Parnassus, and we know why what how you feel about Parnassus. Okay, we and spent time talking about so, it, and that's what I love about Terry Gilliam. Like each film to me, I know you said you took some broad strokes, and maybe I'll get some clarification on that here. Yeah. Like each film is so they're like any director they you have their staples, like their kind of wheelhouse that define their films, right? But Gilliam uses each film so differently. Like each film is a totally different movie. Like I, I look at Christopher Nolan, for instance, um, like Inception, The Dark Knight, Tenet, uh, Interstellar, you know, those films all feel very much the same. They're all brilliant, but they're all very much the same. Yeah. Terry Gilliam, they have similar thematic you know, tendencies and Terry Gilliam's creativity is, you know, dripping, but they're all very different, vastly different. And I love that about him. And like the Fisher King is now the pinnacle of all that. Cause there's only a couple films left that I haven't seen of his, uh, the adventures of Baron Monchauser. That may, no, next week's meaning of life. I think that's actually the only other one I haven't seen. Jabberwocky. Those two only ones I haven't seen. I've seen all the rest of the ones we're about to watch. Now, granted, I'm excited to watch 12 Monkeys again, and I'm excited to watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas again because it's been a very long time, so it'll be kind of like watching it with fresh eyes. Yeah. Uh, but The Fisher King was really legitimately fresh eyes. And my gosh, 1991, this movie is not what I thought it was going to be. It doesn't have any of those. This is the first film that didn't have like a dreamscape. I mean, sure, you could say The Red Knight that is like a, you know, a catatonic psychosis. Yeah is a dreamscape, but I don't, I personally am not counting that as because it's kind of a fleeting and grounded in, you know, totally trauma really. But, uh, no, this movie is, a, is, is to me the first film that I've seen of his that is a grounded film. Yes. Like this is a drama. Like, I mean, sure. It has its funny moments. It has its weird and quirky moments, but the Fisher King and w almost was an Oscar nominated film. Just barely missed the shortlist. Like, yeah. Yeah, so before we get too like heavy into it, if someone by chance is listening and hasn't seen this movie, like what is a quick synopsis? I'll of, just read you letterbox. Kind of it's, it's short it's you know, short and then I'll fill in the gaps here. Yeah. A modern day tale about the search for love, sanity, Ethel Merman, and the Holy Grail. That's funny. <laughs> the Ethel Merman. I didn't even catch that. That's that's funny. Uh two troubled men face their terrible destinies 
and events of their past as they join together on a mission to find the Holy Grail and thus to save themselves. It's a terrible synopsis. Uh, long story, I, I'm going to make this about, I'll try to do it about 30 seconds. Yeah. Jeff Bridges' character, he plays Jack, a radio jockey who, you know, his career is defined on being a jerk and giving people... Very David Stern-esque. Yes, giving people very cynical... Or How Howard Stern. Howard Stern. Uh, <laughs> cynical advice. Yes. And his advice later causes one of his listeners to go and shoot up a well-established bar. Yep. And um, he obviously gets canceled from the air Basically, because of what yeah. happened. Um, and he kind of spirals into, you know, yeah, grappling with life post fame because he's about to be like a sitcom star and all sorts yes. of stuff. Like he, he, his career was already famous. He was about to like jump into fame, fame. Yes. Um, and then it all derailed. And one of the people, spo- obviously, spoiler alerts here because this movie's in '91, and as all of we our other films, we are we are reviewing these films. I just feel, always want to preface that. <laughs> so if you're going, like, if you're one of our avid listeners and you're going to watch this film and haven't yet, maybe wait. Yeah. So here, just. Uh, just press pause. Just press pause. Come rejoin Spend us afterwards. Spend an hour and 20 minutes watching the movie and come back with us. Yeah. And it's, a, it's time well spent. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so now, spoilers warned, uh, he ends up with the guy who goes and shoots up this club, kills Robin Williams' wife. Yes. Um, and he later meets Robin Williams and a bunch of other homeless, who's now homeless, homeless people on this journey uh, to find himself. And once he realizes what happened with Robin Williams, he now feels like he needs to atone for that. Yeah. And if he atones for that, his life will now pick yes. back up. So it's like a he's not doing good to do good. He's doing, he's doing good. good to do right for himself. Yes, and hopefully in and, and hopes that it'll fix his career. Yes. And in this time, um, it's a journey for Robin Williams and it's a journey for Jeff Bridges, both uh-huh. of their characters. They're both finding themselves through each other. Yeah. Uh, and they're both honestly, Robin Williams isn't using him. He's not, but he ends up in a way by default using him. They're both using each other to heal. Yeah. Uh, and and it, and it is a just a beautiful, beautiful film about self discovery, forgiveness, acceptance, um, adapting. Uh, it's just beautiful, and the way they handle it all is is, is I, I thought was just brilliant. Yeah. And shockingly delicate, delicate for a Terry Gilliam film. And like you know, talking about the we'll talk about the ending later. This is almost if I had one critique of this film. Yeah, it was almost too gift wrapped bow on top. Ooh, okay. Uh, right. For what? And that, and, that, and I, I, I'm saying for what ter- for Hollywood? No. Yeah. For like a for what this film is like was trying to was a critical gift gift wrapped in in which context? It had like, a happy ending. All of it was happy. Like everything. It's it it's messy. In yeah. This, in in Terry Gilliam sense, like there, yeah, it is. There is some, getting there was a yeah, but getting, like the end scene, you know. Everybody gets what they wanted. In and this what film. cost though? What does it take to get there? Like it, I, it this all, is a journey to find the Grail. And yeah, and he, they find the Grail, and he ends up saving the dude's life by finding the Grail. Yeah, and then you know he wakes up in his he I, I don't know it just to me everybody lives everybody's happy everybody gets to move on. You know, it just felt almost not Gilliam in a way. I just kept waiting for there to be that final, you know, tra- like poetic yeah. tragedy punchline. That like Robin Williams never woke up, yeah, or like it was all in a coma, or you know what I mean, like some, yeah, it was, it was all it was all a coma dream, basically. Yeah, it that, was that you know Jack Lucas was the one that was actually in the coma. He actually did jump in the yeah, river that one night like whenever that. he, he never meets, died. Yeah, yeah, Perry, yeah. or he did, or and Robin Williams saved him, and yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I kept thinking something like that was going to happen because I'd never seen this film. I'd never seen spoilers on this film because it's really a film you look up spoilers for, yeah, or no. see spoilers for, you know. So I that if I had one critique, I just and it's not even a critique. It's just 
an expectation I guess I had going into it. Yeah. And honestly, I guess I'm glad it didn't happen because I was very, it was very unexpected how this movie ended. But only from a Terry Gilliam guys. Like if you're not a Terry Gilliam person, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh yeah, this makes sense. But to me, I just kept waiting for the other foot to drop. Sure. uh, So that's the rough synopsis of the film. Um, Robin Williams is trying to recover from losing his wife. Jeff Bridges is helping him find love and kind of get back on his feet. Yeah. But selfishly. And in in the meantime, you're introduced to a whole hodgepodge of just very memorable characters. Um, And like, this caused me to look at some like deep filmographies of people I'd never heard of. And like uh, one of the characters want to see, see the name because we were talking about it beforehand. Uh, Mercedes Rule, who played Anne uh, Napolino, won an Oscar for her role in here. Robin Williams, who played Henry Sagan Perry, called Perry. He was nominated for an Oscar. And uh, in hindsight, he came up second in votes to uh, Anthony Hopkins' Silence of the Lambs. So he just barely lost out to Anthony Hopkins for his role in this film, uh, which is just amazing. And honestly, Jeff Bridges could have gotten nominated. I thought Jeff Bridges was incredible here. Yeah, I was was going to say outside of like Big Lebowski, like this is one of my favorite Jeff Bridges roles that I've seen. Absolutely. Um, He, um, in Tideland, like that was a version, like this, it felt very akin to this, Mm -hmm. this role. Obviously, Thailand is a, a decade, two decades. Yeah, Thailand. This is 1991. Decade came out in 2012, no, wasn't it? No, Thailand because Parnassus came out in 2012. Okay, uh, no, either. no, it didn't. It came out in 2009 because I was right at Heath Ledger's thing. You may be right. Anyway, okay. Uh, the point being, though, like these characters felt very oh, similar. Oh, damn, 2005. Thailand did. 2005. Wow. We talked about this one because I thought it was came out later than that too. Zero Theorem came out in 2013. That's right. We talked about that last week. Point being, um, when it comes to Terry, Terry Gilliam and Jeff Bridges, there's just like a chemistry there. Mm-hmm. Like there's they're just in sync as far as what the role needs. And we get another Robin Williams outing with Terry Gilliam. In a, the Adventures of Baron yes. Monhatch, plays the Moon King. Apparently it's a really fun role. Nice. Too. But um, not, not like to this caliber. Yeah. Uh, but... Yeah, the casting was was perfect yep. in, in all aspects. And I had no issues in that front. Robin Williams was actually in talks to do another Terry Gilliam film. Uh, wow. They just didn't say which one it was before he died, but wow. one that's been released, but I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was the Zero Theorem. Something. I don't know. Before, right around his death, yeah. uh, which I read an article not too long ago about how like this film is a much different watch when you look at it through the death of Robin Williams, too. Um, yeah. Is very... Interesting. Terry Gilliam, this is one of Terry Gilliam's favorite movies because of what Robin Williams brought to it and his friendship with him. Yeah. Um, they were a match made in heaven. Terry Gilliam and Robin Williams. Yes. I did not expect to see Robin Williams' penis in this film. That was a <laughs> I missed shock. That. You, you missed How do you mean you missed it? You saw it four times. I wasn't times. looking for it. I mean, there was... When they were dancing in the park where he was doing the first moon dance, laying yeah, naked in the park. I mean, I wasn't... That wasn't my focus. I feel like they had it shadowed out. You know... Like, was not Maybe different brightnesses. Yeah. yeah. No, I saw the penis and the pubes, man. All right. Full Robin Williams penis. I mean, the man's listen. Hairiest dude hairy. alive. Like there were different points where I was like, man, that man is he's really dirty. No, he's just hairy. Yeah. He's got hair all over his hands and like, oh, he always was. I mean, it, that's just yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And he he's got like the same Wolf Ferrell kind of chest hair going on too. Like that kind of <laughs> yes. like beady, it's, like almost like a perm on yeah. his chest. But each individual hair, like a pigtail perm, Ugh, is wild. Disgusting. Uh, when him and Jeff Bridges are nude together in the park at the end, Jeff Bridges yeah. like baby smooth, <laughs> and Robin Williams just like a hairy ass man. Uh, but yeah, I I thought though Jeff Bridges in this movie was absolutely sold it for me. Yep, and, and I'm he, I'm not a huge like, 
I respect Jeff Bridges. Same. I like his films. Yes. But I, outside of the, the, the Big Lebowski, one of my all-time favorite films. Yeah. These two now are my hands-down favorite Jeff Bridges films. Yeah. And like, you know, the one that won him an Oscar, Crazy Heart, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it didn't want anything special to me and like True Grit and like his other, some of his other Western kind of stuff. Like, I like Jeff Bridges. Yeah. But I love him here and I love him in The Big Lebowski. So the thing about Terry Gilliam that I'll kind of hit on that has kind of been like distracting for me in some ways mm-hmm. um, is that sometimes his films feel more theatrical than they do cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of which, before I forget, yeah. did you see the poster for Brazil and uh, the adventures of Baron Monhauser in the video store? No. That was a nice little subtle I'll have to thing. Go back and, I'll have to actually go yeah. back and see there's that. There's the adventures of Baron Monhauser actually in the video store yeah. at like a, there's like a little, like a corner in the wall and then you can see the balloon and the adventures of huh. on there. And then Brazil, I think is actually a picture, uh, like a full size poster. Wow somewhere in there. I can't remember which scene it was in, but well, yeah, because I mean, he's working at a movie store like yeah. that. That would make total sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is. Um, I, I don't know. There's just different moments where um, the set pieces and stuff that Gilliam uses actually feel like they they're on uh, like a theater set. Like it, it just feels mm-hmm. not. Um, oh, sorry. One more thing to yeah. think about theater. You keep saying yeah, because I thought it was in this one, in Time Bandits, yeah. the uh, traveling, whatever they were in, their little stage setup they have in Parnassus, yes. you know what I'm talking about, is in the room of the kid in Time Bandits. It's one of his toys. It looks, I'm talking, it's huh. identical. I think he used whatever yeah. that was going forward. I just didn't want to, I would have forgot about it before we got oh, to Time yeah, Bandits. Oh, no, that's fine. But I, that's what I was saying. I just loved all Terry Gilliam stuff connective. is somehow connected. And yeah, they're all it. in the same world somehow. And, and I, I get that. Again, that's a broad stroke. Yeah, for me. but to me, it's a brilliant. To me, I, yeah. I love it. It's. Oh, so I I but again, like I I but I thought, like I said, like a lot of his films feel feel theatrical to where the different sets and stuff feel like they came off of a a Broadway stage or or something Even like that. Even in this one, very very few times, but still, see, like, I actually I, I think can he, track that with he, you. He gets a lot. He gets a lot of. He gets a, away with a lot. I feel like with, um like different camera angles and everything, mm-hmm. but I feel like he plays into it too much sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think overall, and I might be in my mind getting some confused with, with time in it. Cause I watched those back to back. Yeah. Um, but I thought overall it wasn't as bad. And mm-hmm. I think that's what kind of kept me engaged with this a lot more. Um, granted, yeah, this- I still, I still like that side of Terry yeah. Gilliam. It becomes tiresome though. Yeah, that I consistent. Think, I think consistent you're gonna like very that. much enjoy then, because I that tracks what you're saying. Yeah. I I see that now. The Fisher King, I didn't see that with. Yeah. Um, but all the other ones we've watched well, up until so, this point. So think of like when I think of theater, like you're using so much more. Um, you're you're using more lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to kind of cast like more objects in the room and everything, and I get drawn back to the very first scene of Jack in the studio yeah. where he, there are literally the, the shadows in the room look like a cage. Yeah. And it, it is, it's representative of Jack just in this box. Like he, so he, you're not meaning by theatrical. I thought you meant like a theatrical, like actually like the way the sets designed are Broadway play. Yeah, they, they do. But, but so much times, like whenever like different scenes, I just know in, in different theater scenes, like they they will use light. They'll use mm-hmm. shadow to 
as a secondary prop. Okay, I see that makes sense. Now. Yeah, and every everything is intentional. Yeah, and that that's one thing. That's one thing I love about Gilliam. Yeah. Like nothing is not attention. Like he's like a meticulous director. Yeah. And that's what I loved about him. But I know I, I track with what you're saying, except for with this one. And I think you'll be very surprised with Twelve Monkeys and um, Fear, the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because yeah. those are just yeah. And I'm again, like I said, it's not a, it's not necessarily a negative. Um, it's just something I noticed and I probably tend to lean more towards a, a cinematic feel mm-hmm. to where you are using more of a natural, just like shot of, of, you know, your surroundings, whereas everything is super staged and like you said, intentional yeah. and whatever. Um, Fisher King is not as bad, yeah. but in the different moments where we're in Perry's basement or we're the boiler room, the boiler room. Yeah. yeah or we're, um, the Chinese restaurant. Yes, the Chinese Gosh, restaurant. That, that, that was that was a, a great scene. And I loved it. The first time, though, I was like, did something just happen to my TV? Because like <laughs> that cuts, sweeping thing yeah, across, and they just keep cutting. But then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I like this. Um, yeah, and then the um, the institution the hosp- uh, scene. Especially yeah, the hospital. End, yeah. The end of it for me. That was, that was great. Um, but the, yeah, like whenever... So my... I gave this movie four stars. And I really wanted to give it more. Yeah. And probably somewhere down the line, if I do a rewatch, which I could do a rewatch on yeah, this. Yeah, I like, could too. Like Brazil is definitely a, a rewatch for me. Um, and that's honestly, that's probably it so mm-hmm. far. Um, because most of them have been so emotionally heavy. It's yeah. hard It's hard to do a rewatch. Yeah. Um, but this one, I, I probably could. I think um, I could give it more on a rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, like I want to watch this one with Abby I told her I think yeah. Abby would like this film like so Robin Williams in this for me sells this movie now granted like I said Jeff Bridges is phenomenal here yeah and he goes toe to toe with what I consider is this to me and I'm, I'm including Dead Dead Poet Society and Goodwill Hunting here yeah is my favorite Robin Williams performance you don't, you don't get as much in Goodwill Hunting no, I know. Doing here, yeah. So, yeah, but he's I, like, say he, it's either this or Dead Poet Society. Yeah, and I, or there's a sorry. Go ahead. Well, there's Patch Adams Awakenings. Yeah, but those are different movies. Insomnia was the other one I was thinking of. That's a that is a. It's not Scorsese. No. Uh, um, yeah, it is. Yeah. With uh, yeah, with Al Pacino. It's good, but like he's not in there. He's on No, it's Christopher Nolan is Insomnia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, tw- right. that was 2012. I think that's a good movie, but it's not near. I mean, Robin Williams acting isn't on even in the same stratosphere as this film. Um, no, like uh, good morning, Vietnam. That's another one. Yeah, it's good. But no, I, I, I would akin this one to right there with dead poet society and, and, and what he does have in goodwill hunting th- there too. Like this is to me a top three Robin Williams film. I love his performance here. He is uh, Robin Williams. It's honestly one of my all time favorite actors, I think. Cause every time I watch one of his movies, I'm like, damn, how good is this guy? Yeah. Like he's just so good at it all. But like his subtleties in this film and how he could go from being like just and like Robin Williams is notorious for doing one takes. So like which yeah. makes all the more impressive, especially with scenes like movies like this. He goes from being having a full psychotic break to then just being completely sobered up. Not sobered in terms of like drunk, but like sober thinking. Sober thinking yeah. immediately. And like his face, the mannerisms, the structure, the way he even like moves his eyes and like I swear he can like adjust his pupils on demand. Like yeah. his his role here was perfect for I I can't imagine anybody else being casted than Robin Williams for this role. Yeah. The the first moment where he encounters the Red Knight 
and then mm-hmm. Jeff Bridges, uh, um, Jack is ch- chasing him through the park. Yeah, amazing. Like, he, it's it's crazy, and the next thing you know, just scene in, cuts. Yeah, yeah and it's just there. like calm of the Hi, storm. Jack. Yeah, like it's it's rather. I'm telling you, I this to me is it is my favorite Robin Williams performance and it's also one of my favorite single film performances I've seen. Yeah, like, the, the retrospective view on Robin Williams as an actor in this role is like, it's And it's he jarring. was a slew of movies here too. Yeah. Like this, the G- Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams, Awakening, and uh, Dead Poets Society all came out like a f- eight year span. Yeah. What a slew of like great hits. Yeah. I mean, he, he hit a little rockier spot towards the end of his films and did a bunch of cheesier comedies, but I think that's the wrong way to use him. Like these are the roles that Robin Williams excelled at. Yeah, and you wonder if that's Hook. just like choice, like just because of you know knowing the toll. Mm-hmm. Like I look at the next person I think of that like fits this role for me is you know um, um, Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. You know that has that emotional range. Yeah, just in dynamics of just like high and extra low, which a lot of that is probably just personality wise. Adam like, Sandler kind of is that way too, a little bit. Different, I think it's a different element, though. Adam yeah. Sandler... Is, He's less exaggerative, I guess. That's what I'm... Kind of, yes. When I say emotional, like, it, yeah. it is like... Like, they could break down crying. I never felt that from Adam Sandler. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Well, yeah. Uncut Gems, like, that's a different yeah. type of emotion. I think mentally I was just thinking people who are, like, overtly comedic, they can do hella yeah. good dr- 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 dramatic stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and Adam Sandler can't. I just think it's a it's a yeah. different speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see what gear. you're saying. Robin Williams and Bruce... Bruce Pearl... Jim <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow, Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine Bruce Pearl? I uh, could actually. <laughs> yeah, wow! Yeah, shockingly. Yeah, no. Uh, Jim, I was thinking Bruce Almighty. Yeah, uh, Jim Carrey and Robin Williams. They're like almost like like a ADHD yeah. schizophrenic type yeah, of and, energy. And you wonder how much of that. I mean, I, I think some of that is just like how these actors are wired, and to some degree, and and the other part if like what these roles kind of bring out of out of people mm-hmm. not that they're method or anything like that yeah. but they they go to that place for like for a reason like a, it is it is personal yeah and so many of, of robin williams roles feel super personal this yeah. one especially yeah that's what yeah this thing and like the chemistry i highlighted in my review the chemistry between jeff bridges and robin williams in this yeah. film was exceptional one of the best on-screen chemistries i've seen yep. um the way they just worked within each other, the way they they're bantering back and forth felt so natural and almost unscripted. Yeah. Like it just felt real. And it's so hard for films to replicate that, to make a, f- to where it feels, I mean, I get lost in movies all the time. That's why I love films. Totally. But like this movie more so than many films I've seen, like I felt like, I felt like it was just real. Like, like well, it was like watching a documentary almost. Yeah. Like, the, the, the question that the movie tries to answer is like, how do you, how do you handle trauma? Mm-hmm. And who, who do you walk that out with the most? Yeah, um, you know, Jack is faced with the reality that this life that he basically lived through a mic on a radio has real life consequences, and it's not until he's, you know, faced with that reality that you know his world shattered and everything, everything becomes real to him. He's like outside of the outside of the studio. He's so disregarding to everything else yep. in life um it is he's like, a real dick bag yeah yeah he is he's, he's a terrible human being and it's not until we see him starting to interact with uh perry yeah, well he lost everything like yeah he, th- th- he, that, that's he how loses I, don't, it, yeah. I don't think we got we alluded to it so how he meets perry is he's hit rock bottom yeah and now granted the 
he's met a woman who's great, owns yeah. a video store, loves him, and he's using her for food and shelter, basically. And she you know, <laughs> basically yeah. yes. Um, you don't know a good thing until yeah. You know, so he he's hit rock bottom, and he goes and um, ties some cinder blocks to his feet, and he's gonna go kill himself. Yeah. And there's these um teenage guys out there like when I, there's like a homeless issue you know going around. Yeah, it's they're LA. Like, they're like pilling and pilling. Is it LA? It's New York, isn't it? It's New York. Yeah, because yeah. the whole theme is the song, the Frank Sinatra yes. New York scene. Um, not New York, New York. The New York in June. Yeah, New York in June. Um, yeah, because they're in the Central Park. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they, Robin Williams saves him from those teenagers and also saves him from killing himself. All the while, even in his insanity, knowing who he is the whole time, yeah. knowing that he's the one who got his wife killed indirectly <laughs> and stuff like that. Which did he know for sure? Well, he, the in that same scene, brought him home. He's like, uh, and I'm Jack. He goes, Yeah, I know who you are. It's crazy. Yeah, it just goes to show his character. Like, even despite everything, he was a professor, you know, before it all. And what was he a professor of? History? Was it history? History and literature. History and literature. Okay, which is which why the Holy Grail, like, like that is a big deal for him. So in his psychosis. So whenever Perry uh, meets Jack, he basically tells Jack that he was chosen by these bat fairies that appeared to him in his poop. In his not in his poop. Wait, after. I thought they were turd fairies. No, they were not turd fairies. I I thought my, I thought, I thought so, these were turd so fairies, before, bro. So listen, no, he he says that he was on the toilet and he said it was the type of moment where you you you're like I know, pushing. I almost use that as my quote. Yeah, you, it was mystical, almost mystical poop. You're pushing. He said, "Do you ever have one that was so good, almost mystical?" And then it just releases. And then he said, "Like he saw them." Yeah, I thought you were talking about the turds. No, so before we, oh wow, bef- no, I thought these they were just like fat fairy turds. So listen though, before we find out like what drove Perry to his yeah. psychosis, like what to that, my first like just theorizing was this man had an aneurysm, like yeah, trying to poop. He pushed too hard <laughs> that he just snapped. Can relate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> been uh, there. But thankfully, it was much more, you know, contextualized than than that. that yeah. You know, but it was, if it, if it had been that, it would have been, it would have been pretty crazy. Um, but no, I. I uh, but he was crazy before then. Before the fairies? Yeah. The, uh, so all, he wasn't crazy until his wife died. Yeah, no, totally. But he had, so. So t- time of events. Jack basically tells a call-in guy not that to go pursue this girl not at to this, this uppity girl. club. Yes, that they're they're all the same. They're, they're pointless. Using Life is bas- basically yeah. pointless. Yeah. So he goes into the club. That like he's he basically said, they're they're the haves. You're the have-nots. You'll never be be yeah. more than that. So just do whatever. So the call-in guy goes into the to the club where he said he met the girl and basically shoots it up. Yeah, and he's like a mega fan too. It's not just some random dude yes. he calls into the show every he's a day. Call-in guy. Yeah. 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 If you ever if you do if you do radio shows like you know the call-in guys they got closest thing is KSR down here. Yeah. Yeah. And so he shoots up this place while well, Perry and his wife are there and Wolves she is killed. Out. Shockingly yeah. grotesque headshot. Very, too. very grotesque. I, yeah. And uh, it basically spins Perry into a psychotic break. Speaking of which, and I may be wrong here, yeah. but we're talking about the headshot now. The Red Knight. Yeah. The way that shotgun yeah. blew her brains out. Which you don't really find out towards the Less. Right, but the way that splatters, I think, was intentional because it mm-hmm. showed it. That is the red knight. Yeah, what he sees is her blood splatter, and that's why the red knight. Because the things that the tendrils that come off his back, I think, is supposed to represent blood and head. Well, how and, her thing because it was yeah. very, I feel like, very intentional because it showed it from two different angles. 
I think that is the red knight is yeah. the constant reminder of how him having to see his wife's brains blown out right there. Yeah, I I I don't know the exact I mean there is a relation to to the whole holy grail thing because mm-hmm. um Jack realizes it. He even has a vision similar to it, which is super weird. Yeah, I didn't really it, understand it. Yeah, well, because he was seeing well, the he's, shooter. He's dealing with yeah, because he's dealing with the same trauma because Jack is re- it, it, you know whether you think right, he is indirectly responsible for it. So he he's dealing with that same responsibility, and, and he never that, really thought about it until Perry. And yeah. now the more he's developed a not just because originally he was just using Perry to make himself feel better. Yeah. Try to give him money, realize that wasn't the way. Then he tries to hook him up with this girl. He realizes he really likes to help move on. Yeah. Then over that time, over this relationship he's built with him, he actually cares about the guy, become friends and endearment. Did, did for him. he though? Yeah. Until. Well, you see that when he, well, when he yeah. breaks for Michael Jeter's character, the, yes, the singer. Which, yes. Which I want to talk about Michael Jeter. You can do that now or later. No, I, I want to hit on though before we get too much into it because I think I know we'll we'll come back to this, but there's like there is parallel like the good things that Jack is trying to do in his life mm-hmm. are directly affecting Perry. Yes, in a in a physical and emotional way. Yeah, to the point where the moment things start to get good for Jack, like the moment Jack reverts or does whatever. Jack is going to revert and it's going to affect him to, yeah. to hopefully pull them back. Like they're tied for a reason. Yes. And uh, yeah, it, it's not until later on that, you know, we, we see the extent to that, but I want you to hit your, your Jeter take. Yeah. So Michael Jeter, he plays um, a character in this film. Let me see. Pull it up. I had it pulled up. So Homeless cabaret singer. Yes. Um, so when I think of Michael Jeter, first thing that come up is the villain from Air Bud. Yeah. Always the first thing that comes <laughs> in my head. Yeah. And then um, he's also one of the main characters in Mouse Hunt and then also in Jurassic Park 3. He's the one of he's the pilots. He's also in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, he is. But I'm talking about like major roles. Yeah. I, like mentally, I think of him in. Okay. For, first of all, when I watched this film, I was like, man, he nails this gay part like almost <laughs> too well. So I had to Google. Dude was died like... Like, no, he didn't die because of HIV AIDS, but he had really bad HIV. Yeah. And was gay. Very big advocate for gay rights stuff. He yeah. died of uh, unrelated, regardless. Um, I had no clue. So that was a shock to me. Secondly, what a great performance by Michael was, Jeter. Like, seriously. It was great. Like, it was great. Like, total, like, almost... He had, like, the most unhinged character in the whole sh- whole movie, but not, like a like, a psychotic unhinged, just, like, weird like he was the most terry gilliam person of this film yeah um but i loved michael jeter's character and i loved how they used him to bring jack back you know because jack eventually gets everything that he wants yes and gets back on a high um so so that to, to, before we hit too much as far as like jack back to his normal life yeah. like he spends this whole movie like the first like first and second act of this movie um, Perry's infatuated with this girl, Lydia, and, and yes, he's. Which I question the ability to move on from a tragic death of your wife. It's been five years. I, was it five years or three? No, it, uh, it was three, and then all of this took place over. So it's been four. Okay. Um. So four years. Yeah. And then. I and mean, then the and he, then he's also not psychologically, you know, psychologically sure, well for sure. it. But you know, he's you know found a new. Yeah. So it's not until after after um jack and anna and 
and yeah. um, Jack's girlfriend, who he's living with, Speaking they which, successfully get Perry and Lydia to on a date. You know who that is? That's that's Anne. It yeah. looks, she did not it age looks rough. Well. Yeah, she did a not lot of age work. Well. She's that's, had a lot, a lot of work done to stay, stay young. Probably should not have. No, most don't. She was really pretty in this movie. Yeah, and then now, not so much. Um, so yeah, they finally get Perry the date, and they think it's going to go well. The date ends, and Perry slips into, you know, a psychotic break. Yeah, the date does go well. Yeah, yeah the yeah, date yeah, goes yeah. well. Yeah, really and, well. I mean, the only thing that we can associate that him reverting to this, you know, psychotic break is he, feel, he feels guilty for yeah. having these feelings. I think so too. Yeah. But, and, yeah. Well, cause he, he, it's the first time we see him relive what happened because exactly. he's fallen, he's realized he's fallen in love with this woman. Yeah. And now the, she, he's, she's reciprocating. So I think the gravity of like, Oh wow, I'm healing. I'm moving on. Yeah. His body's last fight or flight. It's like, here's remember what happened. So he goes off on a break. He gets picked up and taken away. In the meantime, that night, Jack and Anne, Basically, you know, they, they sleep together. They they've, had get, a, they've had a rough patch. They didn't get picked up, taken away. He ended up... Oh, no, that's right. He no. ends up... He, he, ends he has up a psychotic race. He's the Red Knight, runs away. Yes. Ends up under the bridge and those two yes. teenage boys be, basically beat him to yeah, death. Cut and him then up and basically... They find Jack's wallet. Yeah. And then call him. That's right. Yeah. Um, so they wake up the next day. And he's like... Jack Jack wakes up and calls his agent. Yeah. Because he's feeling good. Because he's... Yeah. he's He's done right by the world now. You know, yeah. he's realized like, wow, you know, you know, because at first he just tried to buy Perry off and like just give him some money and food and stuff like that. But now he's like, wow, I've set him yeah. on a new path. He's healed. He's better. Now I'm going to fix my life. And he like blows off Anne after all the years of charity she's given him. He's like, you know what? We're going to take a break now. My yeah. career's back on track, you know, and he does completely ghost her. He gets his career back. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like back crushing the radio to the point that now he's talking about doing sitcoms. And when he's going up to meet to the meet the executive about this movie or as a TV show, he's going to lead in yeah. um, Michael Jeter's character, the cabaret homeless guy is like, Jack, Jack, you know, whatever. And yeah. he just you can tell he's conflicted, but he's like, he ignores him outside. Totally. And uh, everybody's kind of disgusted, like his agents, like disgusted at the guy trying yeah. to talk to Jack. And Jack is like, mm, but so, eventually ignores him, goes up to the top floor and they're talking about this show. And it's a show about homeless people, but tastefully. Talking about homeless people, yeah. how they want to be homeless, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes Jack just kind of has this, his own psychotic break and just runs down the stairs to go try to find the uh, Michael Jeter's character. Yeah. To don't know why, but you know, just to see what he can do. And then ends up uh, going to find Perry uh, and talk to him in the hospital. And he's like, you know what? He's back because after he got beaten so bad, it put him back in the catatonic yeah. stinks. He's like in a coma. Yep. Um, and being carried out of this basement of this, like, you know bottom feeding floor basically where they send all the crazy people yeah uh which lydia is still there and she's bringing him fresh sheets and you know she's she's in love with him so it's the first person she's ever going to because she's weird as shit too yes uh they're you know they're they're a match made in heaven as Anne said uh so anyway he goes and gets this holy grail from the billion dollar billionaire's house and turns out to be like a memoriam trophy of his daughter yes. or something but he brings it to him uh breaks into this house he has his own little psychotic break where he sees the killer who like ruined his life he confronts that um brings the girl back and robin williams wakes up um and is teaching people the frank sinatra song new yeah. york in june so something that like really stuck out to me in this movie like i said like, like jack in and Perry's relationship, like it, it, it runs parallel mm-hmm. as far as like the progression of like the healing process of it all. Yeah. 
um, whenever Perry is trying to explain to Jack, because Jack goes on this mission mission for the Holy Grail, because again, Perry says that fairies told him he was the one. Did Perry write the Fisher King? Because remember when... So whenever he's explaining the story of the Fisher King, yeah, he says, I forget exactly like how the story goes, but all he, he this king sends all these men to find the Holy Grail. Yeah. And they can't find it. The king, I guess, becomes ill, is in bed. Yeah, uh, he sends all of his like higher up back, like, yeah. his knights, his and scholars. They, they, none of them could it. find it. None of them can get it. And then the fool. And yes. And then the fool comes to him and the king is thirsty. And so the fool goes, gets a cup, fills it up, and brings it to the king. And the king realizes this is the grail. And he asked the, the fool, like, what did you do? How did you find this? He's like, I don't know. I just knew you needed something to drink. And, like, that that stuck with me in the moment. Because you find the grill in the least likely of places, the, the least, least likely of people, which in yes. this case is the man who got his wife killed. Yeah. And now, and him bringing it to him is the final act of him full circle. He, he has now healed himself as yeah, well. Yeah, so, but it's, it's not just the, it's not just the, the quest, like, because then that's, that's the king sending the knights and all that stuff away. It's the selfless act mm -hmm. of, I know you need this. It's like in the Avengers, you know, you get, <laughs> yeah, they jump yeah. off, they sacrifice themselves to get yeah, the soul stone. Exactly. So, uh, and, and so that symbolism was like super, like that was. It's not like you need to bump this up a half a star. I, I probably like. will. Damn. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Yeah. This like movie, I, was, I was explaining that again. I was like, damn, I'm getting chills. I know. Like this is not like Gilliam is so, a damn good storyteller, but this to me, he so, broke the mold. So my issue with me is the third act felt rushed in a really? lot of ways yes I, I didn't understand so the time jump back to him being successful was one thing not necessarily like the like now he's so you're successful. saying maybe the the up to the dinner scene like i like i i thought i can i can kind of see where you're coming from to, to me up to his psych, up to his psychotic break was perfect yeah like, it, like it, you it mean him getting running, hospitalized yeah it was running to a possible five star for me this? it's it's two hours yeah. exactly almost but the the psychotic break like mm -hmm. what what was it that really made him like I, th I think to me it was his last instinct of moving on I, from his wife and like he realized he's in love and it's reciprocated no 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 yeah not not uh you're talking about jack not jack okay yeah because it wasn't a psychotic break i think it was just this realization of of guilt and like this idea of am i really going to revert to profiting off of yeah he had a fork in the road again yeah, it, yeah, yeah. like what am i going to do this time and michael jeter kind of played the last like the you know like a biblical almost yeah. beggar at the corner yeah, exactly and so that that felt kind of was tom waits in this film i can look i feel like he was yeah he was he was the beggar that sat next to jack he was yeah in the wheelchair and he basically gave Love the that. story i remember sitting there, i was like what yeah, a great that, monologue that, that was, was a great super, monologue yeah that was super poignant as far as like the the story because that because that was the moment of of like am i going to kiss kiss butt and like take this movie role mm -hmm. the tv tv role and just I forgot about that be successful or am i gonna do the the one thing that i know i should do yeah what uh, a great i love how he uses all of his people yeah what a great great thing he stays yeah. loyal to to those guys those yeah, different and actors and and reciprocated too like yeah. yeah it's great yeah okay um but yeah this will probably I'm doing it right now. You, you, if you're Already listening here for to this, he's bumping to four and a half stars. Four and a half stars. It still doesn't beat Brazil. But it's still your, it was your second. It's there, my second so. favorite. So is Brazil five for you, or is it four, four and, and a half? half? Four and a half. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I loved I loved this movie. It's so good. I know it's, <laughs> it's so good. good. <laughs> yeah, this to me, arguably, 
I, I, I get the Brazil. I get the Brazil hype. Yeah. This is arguably to me a better film than Brazil. Uh, yeah, I get it. Um, I, and I'm not as high. I mean, Brazil's four and a half stars for me. So I mean, I'm like I said, these are all razor thin. Yeah, I, and I see th- it. that's the thing. It's so hard. It just depends. Honestly, almost depends on what your mood you're in because Terry Gilliam films are such each mil- outside of the zero theorem. That one is very similar to Brazil. That's why we watched them together. Yeah. But each film is wildly different in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Even the zero theorem in Brazil are very different, um, but very similar in tone. Yeah. But the Fisher King, man, it almost doesn't feel like a Gilliam film, but then there's just enough staples there. It's like, oh yeah, this is definitely a Gilliam film. So yeah, I mean, y'all just heard us gush over it. I mean, this is amazing. The story, the script is great. The cinematography is pretty dang good. The performances are stellar all around. I mean, you had two people nominated for an Oscar plus an Oscar winner from it. Um, And Jeff Bridges should have been like how he wasn't. I mean, I know they don't like to nominate two people from the same film as a lead because those would both be leads, right? Yeah. Because Perry was uh, Robin was nominated for lead role. So I guess if anything, Jack would have been a supporting if anything, but. Um, I don't know. I think Jack is the lead in this, and and that's what I thought. But yeah. Robin Williams was nominated for a lead, so if they did, it would have both of them had to have been yeah. nominated for a lead role, yeah, which that, I think happens. you could have. I think you could have for this year uh, or for that that film. So, yeah, as a whole, The Fisher King to me is the best Gilliam film so far, and also just one of my yeah, favorite you, films. You're probably not going to like this, but I think one of the the big defining differences as far as probably why this works more than other Terry Gilliams is. For the Fisher King, at least Terry Gilliam does not have any writing credit. He is just oh, really? he is just, just, just he is just directing. That's fine. Um, and that that makes sense to like me. Like the Empire I think, Strikes Back. Yeah, I mean there is some some editing, like you know, because I think that that is if this is a director in review. I've never actually even looked at what he's written uh, and what he hadn't. I yeah. just go to the director, chose the ones he directed. I mean, I'm I'm just kind of glancing through all of them. Uh, he didn't write on the Zero Theorem. Uh, that's another one that we've watched. But yeah, Tide Wait, you Land. You have Tom Bandit rated higher than Fisher King? Uh, no, not anymore. You did to begin with? It was close, man. It was close talking it through. But I don't know, man. We'll See, talk about it. Yeah, we will. Because Tom Bandit, I could almost drop to a three and a half. Oh, that's not right. Well, well Tom Bandit was still good. I'll discuss why. I have mm-hmm. it at four, but that would not go up for me from yeah. four. Uh, but if I could give freaking the Fisher King six stars, I would. <laughs> I love the Fisher King, man. Like, Gilliam aside, this is like, I'm going to have to, I don't own this film. I'm going to own this film. And I want a poster of this film. Like, I am all in on this movie. And it makes me want to do a Robin Williams and review real bad. Because um, you have got to watch What Dreams May Come. And have you seen Awakenings with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams? No. Oh my gosh, it's so huh. good. That's one of my favorite Robin Williams outings too. You seen Patch Adams? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Have you seen uh, uh, well, you said it's at Insomnia. No. Have you seen One Hour Photo? No. Oh man, you got some Robin Williams holes. <laughs> you got to fill stuff, man. I got to watch. I guess. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so closing thoughts for me on the Fisher King. Um, different from most of Gilliam's other works because now that we're get, getting, I've seen the rest of them mostly. This is very much a almost a one-off in terms of tone uh and this is definitely most definitely his most mainstream film and feels like his most like this was probably the most hollywood backed film he had i would guess i don't know that but sure. i would guess it is um and it felt that way and it paid off 
So I hope that, you know, because I was reading some more about him and what he wants to do. Um, like, I think I have to relook at it again, but I think his newest, the film he wants to get made is like God gets tired of humanity and wipes them all out again <laughs> and restarts and kind of makes a wager with the devil similar to Parnassus. Or, but, or Time Bandit. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, one of those kind of films, you know, very yeah. much those types. So I hope someone gives him and I hope he's old. I hope, you know, let Tom Cruise finally do his Terry Gilliam pick. <laughs> That would be great. Yeah, get, let's just get let's just get all the Jeff, bring Jeff Bridges back as a collaborator. Tom Cruise, Jeff Bridges, I'm all in. Yeah. So uh, give me a full CGI, Robin Williams. Uh, I'm just kidding. Don't give me that. So uh, yeah, Fisher King, five stars, four and a half for JP. You heard it uh, here because he changed it on the pod. So yeah. um, that brings us to Time Bandits, and I think you feel a little more passionate about this movie than I do. So I'll let you open with this one. <sighs> suck at this stuff man that's okay just tell me I, so i have this one rated so, so i have the fisher king parnassus zero theater on brazil time bandits yeah now granted the last two are four stars the other ones are all four and a half except for parnassus and fisher king they're five that, that was your total terry gilliam ranks list. yeah so i have brazil number one fisher king two time bandits three tideland four parnassus five zero theorem six uh the reason i have time bandits where it is i think is solely um, like cultural impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think Brazil is a better film in, oh, my, in my list. Yes. Yes. Um, but time bandits came out before. I think, like you said, it's kind of off the heels of Monty Python. It's his first, this it's his first film. That's not 90, like a, he did Jabberwocky right before this, but Jabberwocky is one that it's still a medieval setting. Monty Python movie, basically. Sure. But this is his first non Monty Python to me based on his filmography film. Now the DNA is still there. This is 1000 still was 1000% of Monty Python film, but uh, it's not at the same time. Yeah. And, and with that, you know, we're given, so let me just read kind of like what Letterbox has for a description. This um, one's because, better than the other one. Yeah. Because it, it, the concept of this movie, like, I was a little bit confused going into it. I, it I've seen it twice now and I'm still confused sometimes. It, yeah, it about took parts a little while to, for me to really get a grip as far as what was happening. So all the dreams you've ever had and not just the good ones. Uh, young history buff Kevin can uh, scarcely believe it. When six dwarves emerge from his closet one night, former employees of the Supreme Being, uh, they've uh, purloined a map charting all the all the holes in the fabric of time and are using it to steal treasures from different historical eras taking kevin with them they variously drop in on napoleon robin hood and king agamemnon agamemnon the king of greece basically yeah the king of greece uh before the supreme being catches up with them and so yeah that 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 describes it pretty well um (laughs) it does but at the same time like what the hell i don't know it it honestly i get sleepy Every time I watch this film, no matter what time of the day, it really? about the Sean Connery King Agamemnon scene. Like, <laughs> is it like, because Sean Connery's sultry voice maybe. just kind of lulls you away? And I thought he looked like uh, uh, Gimli. What the hell is his name from Lord of the Rings? His son know. is Jonathan Rhys Myers. What the hell is his I, I dad's name? Terrible with names. I don't know these things. I, I tried to figure it out when we watched his terrible his son's terrible trailer a few weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> anyway, go I ahead. I gotta already. figure that out now. Uh. Yeah, I mean this this really did kind of describe what's happening pretty well. Um when we pick up the movie, uh Kevin is with his Kevin! Fi- <laughs> Wow, you woke Luna. 
name that movie. Uh, that's McAllister. Or Home Alone. Home yeah, Alone. That's, hey, that's good. You got two uh, wins there. So I think. Uh, so yeah, Kevin and uh, is with his family. Uh, we're we're guests. Like it's current oh, time. Wow. His son is Jonathan Reese uh, Davies. His name is John Reese Davies. That's why I just couldn't figure huh. it out. Okay, sorry. Uh, no. So their their family. It, it's very much classic uh uh gilliam trope of you know fighting against consumerism this family wants to buy the most latest um you know product out there and and it's like by marginally different while the whole they're watching all these commercials while the whole time kevin's like asking his dad did you know that this army used this tactic to beat this army and they're watching literally game show people die on tv yeah the family could care less (laughs) And um, so, well, what was it called? Like, uh, your money or your life? Yeah, yeah. And it's just like <laughs> they drowned it. that one old man in custard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Drop my phone down the hole. Oh yeah, bro. Got to be careful down there. It's gone. <laughs> it doesn't come back. <laughs> it's underneath the couch now. <laughs> oh, Got nice. It. So they they go straight down to like the cylinders. Yeah. So it's, and so uh, so yeah, they send Kevin to bed. Uh, where he is then visited by uh, these well, little people. Well, first, so the first night they send him oh, to bed. Yeah. yeah, it happens first. He hears this um, galloping, and the door bursts open. Yeah. This knight comes shining yeah, which in. I didn't totally understand at first if it's just like Kevin's ability to, or I don't either. They don't explain it. I'm not sure. Yeah, and honestly, Kevin is basically literally just a plot piece in this film for yes. being such a central, what should be a central character, and top billing on here. Yeah. He does nothing except for in the King Agamemnon scene. That's really about all. That's not true because he, he kind of is. The, Maybe I fell asleep. He is a problem solver. Like, he, he, oh yeah. But like, I'm, that's what I'm saying. But like when his screen time is there, it's for the same purpose yeah. for the same couple of minutes. Like, well, for the sake of, for the sake of the story, like you're, you're probably right. There's not much he does. Like he doesn't have like the, like, he's the catalyst. Yeah. But he doesn't, I feel like, but in what being, way is that you see the catalyst? Like, like he doesn't have a special runs, ability. Right. The movie just runs through him yes. by default, but for no reason so, almost. Like, I feel like they could have, I feel like Gilliam is one of my critiques. I feel like Gilliam could have chose a different outlet to utilize this plot. Yeah. Rather than using a kid because I, and he just, I just feel like the kids underutilized for such an air quotes, important purpose he has in the, or should have in the film. Yeah. I, I agree. I could see that. Um, I didn't have an issue with it. It didn't like stick out to me as. And maybe this is because this is the second. I watched the movie last year for the first time. This is my second time. Maybe it's watching it twice within a year. Yeah. Just kind of like it bugs me more a second time. Gotcha. Again. So the the former employees that um, basically show up, you know, these are for the Supreme being. The Supreme being. Yeah. These are are little people that have showed up. What they call dwarfs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, They call them the dwarfs in this film. Uh, So they show up in the closet. Um, with the map, which we find out they have stolen from the Supreme Being. Uh, what are we going to talk about? They like beat the shit out of the kid for a minute. Yeah, they do. They're <laughs> like, oh, hey, he's friend. And he shines a flash on him. They're like, get him. They start like <laughs> beating the hell out of him, which so, you get a bunch of Star Wars alumni. Yeah. Like three of them were in Star Wars. Of the of the dwarves, which one was your favorite? Not the lead. And everybody like Randall? praised him. Yeah, Randall did not like no, Rand- it was Randall. was not Randall. Uh, I got mine. <sighs> Not not fidget. Probably either Wally 
or Strutter. It was it was definitely Wally for me. Yeah. Og was the one that got turned into the pig. Yeah. That was pretty great. And I mean, I liked Kenny Baker's fidget. Yeah. But uh and that for anybody who don't know, Kenny Baker is R2 D2. Yeah. Uh so that was a nice little one. And Jack Purvis is in Star Wars as well. He plays a sleuth uh a slathering of different characters in the original trilogy. So uh so yeah, that's basically we find out that um these dwarves had stolen um, a map that has plotted out all these different holes in the fabric of time. Um, these dwarves basically jobs were to help build the world, build yeah. the universe that we live in. Um, and they had a big role in building it, but now they have kind of been demoted to basically just shrubbery, like cleaning up trees and all shrubbery. that stuff. Yeah. Oh, wait, have you ever seen my path on the Holy Grail? It's been a long time, man. Because I just quote, I quote, yeah. it's a quote. That's why I didn't instantly just get it there. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, so yeah, these guys have basically decided we're not going to do this grunt work anymore. We're just going to go through time and steal money and we'll, you know, be fine. Um, they're going to like steal some of the biggest artifacts. Yeah. From yeah they're going to, the, so they, they time. drop, they drop into Napoleon and that's uh, the first one, which I want to stop there. So yes, please one, give us your Napoleon okay. take. So, well, this is a criticism and a take. So I haven't posted my review yet. I'm almost done. I'm on the final yeah. paragraph, just recapping my final thoughts again. What worked for me about this film and what didn't work? What didn't work was I thought for the door, first of all, the kid just being basically a poorly utilized plot vehicle. And then you have your six time, you know, escapading dwarves. They were all fine, but I feel like they were... Honestly, I don't really know. It's it's such an enigma for me, this film, because I like it a lot. And it's a cult classic for, or not even cult classic, it's a classic for a reason. But like all the dwarves, I feel like we're overshadowed by the worlds they go into. This is where I think, you know, in my, it, it, when I post my review, which will be up probably tonight, um, by the time y'all listen to this for sure. Um <sighs> The Gilliam, this movie, the Monty Python bit, which is all sketch stuff, scene by scene, sketch by sketch, that is very evident in here, and he does it through worlds. So each world on the map they go to is like a new sketch. So as you go into each new sketch, they quickly brush away the previous and move on to the next. So you're literally scene by scene as like a new sketch. And for me, what didn't work were the dwarves in terms of I didn't ever get to really bond with any of them, yeah. even the lead. But what I what did work was each avatar, if you want to, that, sure. of each world. Yeah. So like the first one they go into, Napoleon, I thought Ian Holm yeah. was fantastic as Napoleon and stole the scene from everybody else in the show. Yeah. Or or everybody else in the, on, you know, in the movie of that particular scene. I thought he was incredibly memorable, incredibly quotable. I thought he was great. So, and that goes for the next one with Sean Connery as King Agamemnon, or whatever you say his name, the King of Greece. Yep. Incredibly memorable, great performance, commanding, stole the scene from everybody else. And then, um, actually, I guess I think the next one was Robin Hood. Uh, John Cleese and yeah. Michael Palin totally steal the show from everybody else when they go to the Robin Hood forest. Um, and then Sean Connery as King Agamemnon. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end with the villain with David Warner uh, as the... What was his evil genius? Just what he's called. I think. Uh, I think. Yeah. Evil genius. Yeah. Uh, he once again, steals the show. Uh, I, I feel like this, 
all the main characters are somehow supporting characters in their own movie. And I think that is a direct fault to the Monty Python DNA of this film. This film should have been... And now granted, this was Gilliam finding his feet. This movie launched Gilliam into what Gilliam is today. And you can see a lot of evidence of the movie like The Fisher King, Parnassus, all these films that we've we've already covered and we're going to continue to cover. You see the blueprint is laid out in this film. Gilliam lays out his future in this film. And I love it. I love that. And I appreciate that about this film. However, he holds on to too much of the Monty Python, which Monty Python to this day is still in every one of his films, but yeah. the right amount. This one was a little awkward, kind of like a first date trying to figure, okay. trying to figure yeah. it all out. And to me, that's why this is a four star film and not higher and could be, if he didn't do such a good job, honestly, if I wasn't future proofing this film, like in terms of what it meant for yeah. Terry Gilliam, it would be three and a half for me. That's- that that's funny because you are normally really good about not doing that. Yeah, I just as, like you're talking about watching it as a yes, snapshot. Yeah. I just, I just can't with this one. Like, but it also works to its credit in terms it's, of backtracking too. Like the Monty Python bits just don't work for me here. Is and, it is it simply because of the Python style, or is it because of the time in which this movie was made? Like because it is such no. a dated looking movie. No, 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 I like that. I yeah. think that I think okay. the datedness of that works. Some films don't look good dated. Yeah. This one it looks is great. a classic for a reason, right? Criterion. Yeah. Like, it, it looks great. It, it is a timeless film. Like the Dark Crystal, Star Wars, like all of those, like they're timeless for a reason because they're just so brilliantly done. Yeah. So to Terry Gilliam's credit, the film is gorgeous. I mean, it's an amazing film. However, the what I mean by the Monty Python taking it back is like each world they go to is a sketch. Yeah. And they're the dwarves basically do the exact same routine each sketch, each world. The only things that are different are the avatars of those worlds which are phenomenal and carry this film and make it you know extra memorable. Um but for being carried by the dwarves and being carried by the kid Warnick, they like are little to no consequence. They just move the plot along. Um so that's my critique, and I think that goes back to the Monty Python skit sketch nature of these worlds. Totally. Um, which isn't their fault. That's Terry Gilliam's fault. But it it does mostly work. I, I said it's a small critique, but it does take me out of the film a little bit. Yeah. Uh, scene by scene. And then you get the King Agamemnon scene with Sean Connery, which is by contrast to the film long. Like that that when they're in the Greece or Mesopotamia, wherever yeah. the hell they are. That scene is really long compared to every other world they go into and almost too long, like jarringly long for me, at least. I didn't have an issue with it because it was the point. It, it, it felt like a fork in the road for me yeah. as far as the direction this movie could go. And I thought that was the point yeah. of, you know, at towards the end, uh, King Agamemnon basically has said that, you know, he's found this boy, helped him uh, whenever he's fighting uh, an enemy, helps him win, brings him back. And, you know, Kevin at the time is separated from the dwarves and doesn't know he's going to get home. And King Agamemnon basically says, well, you're going to be my heir. And so it's kind of like a a what could have been. um, Is that why you have an issue with the ending? Yes. I have a huge issue with the ending, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, Because I I forgot about the heir part. And then I I remember you saying you had an issue with the ending. I forgot about that. it, it, It is like he... You know, he he is said to he's gonna be the heir, and then you know the dwarves come in, and they do their their little bit of stealing. And mm-hmm. this movie is a heist movie, and I like that element. And yeah, and there are different 
It's a time heist. It's great. It, yeah, it's a time heist. Um, Listen, one of my favorite quotes of this film is when they're presenting all this gold to Robin Hood and they th- yes. they were trying to win him over and he's yeah. like, oh, thank you for donating all this. And he's like, they're like, what? And like, he he's just so put out that he has to talk to him at the end. He's like, uh, wow, jolly nice of them. Terrible people though. Yes, <laughs> like, it's like, exactly. I got busted out laughing because John Cleese is one of my favorites of all the Monty Python yeah. people and I cannot wait to watch Monty Python the Holy Grail with all this in context. Yeah, I that that was that was the the tongue in cheek. Like that was the the humor that you you either need a ton of that or very That's little. That's what I'm saying. The, it the, was sprinkled in just the enough. DNA of it was there, but it, to me it it was just too like I said, I appreciate that it helped find his footing yeah, going forward. We would have needed more of that if if we were gonna have the jumps in between times and all that stuff the way that we had it. I, I, I see that. Yeah, it just didn't to well, me, it was too haphazard a little yeah. bit for it to fully work. Yeah, and there's there's another moment in that time period where they they run into uh, a, a a couple, Michael a Palin's character. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Vincent and Pansy. Does he have erectile dysfunction? Is that what the I, problem I was? I think so. Yeah, yeah. to get the fruit. I don't. <laughs> Anyways, uh, and then they jump forward because this is saying he's oh oh I'm having the issue now. I think he was getting a boner when he was yeah. tied up by the people. Yeah. <laughs> And leave then, it to Michael Palin man yeah and then they jump ahead in the future again and then there's I, I mean I guess we're assuming it's a distant relative that happened to be called Vincent and Pansy yeah. again <laughs> he had the um, one with the nose issue that time yes yeah which again if they're the same people there's just some time some time I know questions. I don't know I love that he plays those weird roles because in Monty Python and the girl he plays Sir Lancelot the Pure and he's yeah. like trying to get yeah. molested by all the nuns <laughs> Oh, it's crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I, I didn't really have an issue with the dump, jumping in between time. Um, there's a a point where they kind of go into a weird dimension, um, where they end up on the ogre ship. Yeah, and uh, I forget exactly what they call. They have a name for it, um, but it is uh, it kind of dives you more into a, a world that feels very Terry Gilliam like. Yeah, that's like my favorite part of the film. Yeah, one, but it's also the one I always fall asleep in. Well, I don't. Both I don't understand why. Like, well, it's because that freaking King Agamon scene, dude. I like always fight myself yeah. to stay awake through that. Like, what feels like an hour long scene. Yeah, it's just because you know why? It's because it was Sean Connery. They had to give him the most screen time. <sighs> yeah, and I, I've never read that, but I guarantee you that's why we're stuck there so long. And it's just so expository. It's like, oh bless. And then, like two scenes later, is the troll. Like two worlds, two segments later, yeah. and I'm always like. Oh, this is beautiful. I'm like yeah, nodding it off. It's like, dang, gum it. <laughs> Every time, last night included, I had to like pause the movie and took, I paused the movie, set an alarm for 15 minutes so I could take a power nap. Oh, man. I did. No and then power I was naps. ready. I finished it. But the first time I watched it, I didn't. I had to snooze through and rewind. This time I at least <laughs> stopped it and realized. But, uh, but yeah, that it is. I, I get what you're saying. And I can admit that this movie has flaws, but. But he's a pioneer, dude. This came out in 81. Exactly. Like Dark Crystal, E.T., like the blueprints for a lot. Now, granted, you don't know how deep in production those films were, but, you know, because a lot of these, like Dark Crystal and E.T. released a year later. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. There's no way that, like, this was just a a breaking point as far as directors of this, yeah, of he, this style. He, now, granted, Star Wars episode four and five had come out already. Yeah. Um, By this point, uh, 77 and 80. So, there are some what I feel like Star Wars, especially probably a New Hope, inspirations from that in this movie. 
Um, but I definitely, you can definitely see the impact this movie had on later eighties and nineties movies. Yeah. So, so my issue with this and probably why this doesn't get ranked higher for me is, is again, the ending. I, then this is becoming a common theme for me in Gilliam movies mm-hmm. is the third act. Like yep. what, how, how do you land this ship? See, I hard pass or disagree with you on uh Fisher King though. Yeah. I, I can now, I can it, give you credence on I some of the bumped, other. I bumped it up because yeah. I, I felt it was better connected, but yeah. again, a perfect movie like it, it just begins in it, it yep. just it's seamless yeah brazil and the fisher king are his best ending so far now yeah. how did tideland in tideland ended pretty Tide, good with tideland the tra- honestly was one the of train. the better yeah but throughout the whole movie there's too many questions like are they brother and sister or are they not they are not they are certain they are terry gillum if you don't pick up the phone yeah, and part. answer we will finance your movie personally um <laughs> uh, but yeah the my issues with this with this movie came towards the end whenever they're confronting uh, the evil genius uh, who is trying. He's basically trapped by the supreme uh, leader. Um, so when he had that being, um, thing come out of the top of his head, it, and he exact, sp- yeah. and spun all the cowboys in the Dude, air. That was, was like, weird. Listen, that was a nice Avengers assemble moment though when they thought they had him dead to rights. Like, like yes, they totally look back on that moment. It was got, like this is what we're trying. Yeah, to Yeah, they got all the warriors out of town to come stand up against the evil genius. And uh, yeah, it just it was one of those things where it if that was a point where this movie felt dated. Um, you're bringing all these uh, different people that you've. Uh, come across in the past to basically help you now. Um, it didn't feel really connected. Um, and yeah, it just, I don't know. And how they beat him. It just, I don't know. The payoff was not what you expected for a movie no. like this. That That's not my issue with the ending. My issue with the ending was the house fire. Yeah. Like, was any of it real? Wait, it was because he had the photos. Right. Right, right, right. He had the photos uh, they found. That's not what I'm trying to say. The Sean Connery thing. Yes. So. I don't know. Listen, I don't know. So whenever in the fight scene, whenever um, evil, or just call me evil has been destroyed. Uh, so the Supreme being tells all the dwarves to, to pick them up or else, you know, you can't let any be, of the yeah, evils can't let any get away. Well, one Kevin gets stuck wakes, in. Yeah. Kevin wakes up. House is on fire. His house is on fire. He is basically carried out by firefighters. He, Sean Connery's character is, you know, find out to be one of the firefighters. The parents don't really care about anything except their precious, you know, technology, which, you know, the relate, like the symbolism between what Terry Gilliam views as the world's evil is technology. Consumerism. Yeah, consumerism. Yeah. Yep. Um, and their obsession with this uh, they basically find a piece of evil in this toaster, toaster oven. oven. And he says, don't, don't touch yeah. that. And of course, they look at him and touch it immediately. And then they explode. They blow up right in front of your eyes. And nobody bats an eye. Yeah, nobody except except Sean Connery, who winks at him. Yeah. And then drives and, off. And he realizes who, who it is. Yeah, and he just he just drives off, leaving a kid by himself. And the kid, closing scenes, walks back to his house to his parents who are a pile of ash. Yeah, and the, all the neighbors are just staring around they, looking. What happens to this kid? Is this kid an orphan now? Yeah, I think the Supreme Being is going to at least turn him into a pig or something. Let him go wander uh, I, like Jesus did with Legion. I don't, I don't get a it, bunch man. Of pigs. It didn't make sense. At least let the kid like... Yeah, the ending of the film, that final battle scene was fun, but that and then going into 
the very ending. Yeah. Like in the Sean Connery thing. Why? I, I Why? don't know. Because it, it's Sean Connery, I guess. I guess. You got that name back then. Like, I don't know. Actors' egos, I guess, play a bigger, bigger, bigger role as far as. But what, Sean Connery being in a Derek Gilliam film feels like the weirdest of all of the ones I've seen so far. I don't know. It was, yeah, maybe. Especially considering how what a high he was on in the eighties. Yeah, I I didn't have a big issue with it. I I don't. Well, I have an issue with it, but like it's just like it he seemed weird. like a weird choice. Yeah. Um, I but, so we hit on like this is like a time heist movie. And what was what was your favorite like element to that that played into that? You thought? What do you mean? Well, because like for me, yeah. Tell me what yours is, and so then I can have a baseline of understanding what you're going. Yeah, for. I, I mean, like this movie felt the reason this worked worked for me till the very end was like whenever evil catches them, puts them in the bar, like whenever they're trying to get out of that cage and they're they're swooping from cage to cage, like it it felt like. A heist to me. You mean like where the stakes actually yeah. were? Yeah, where I there's never, actual stakes. I never yeah. had them. Yeah, I never felt that in this film, but that's okay, okay for me. I can, that's not what drew me to this film. I enjoyed the heist aspects of it. It is a time heist. I enjoyed the whimsical, yeah, fantasy nature of it, which is kind of my my thing. So I never felt any stakes ever either either time I've seen this film. So I didn't have that, but like my. My favorite thing was just escapading across the different time and getting to see the different who was going to be in the next world, the anticipation for that. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually care about the overarching plot of this film either time I watched it. <laughs> um, but that's not that's not a detractor yeah. for me. Like I saw no, a four-star movie. It. Like Time Bandits is a weird one for me. Um and like I said, just because I think it's like his puberty phase film. Like this is the one that launched him yeah. into who we know. Um yeah. he still had he still had a lot of Monty Python tropes to like his movie. Yeah, and uh, the the film he released after this, yeah, is what we're watching next week, uh Life of Brian mm. or Meaning of Life. No. Life of Brian. Life of Brian. Yeah. Um so, you know, it, I never had those stakes, I never felt the, you know, the gravity of the film, so but as a whole Time Bandits is good. It's a classic. I think it's a must-watch, yeah. not just as a Terry Gilliam fan, but as a just movie fan, movie I think fan. it's an important movie because you can see the cultural significance this has had on, I think, a lot of sci-fi that we see today. And yeah. honestly, just a lot of adventure films that we see today. Yeah, I, I look at I look at like the the movie, like the movie cover, poster, whatever art for it. Mm -hmm. it, it feels like a sci-fi novel yep. like cover. And, uh, and we are getting a, now a much disavowed. Uh, Terry Gilliam was livid about it. The Takia Watiti, or you say his name, is making a Time Bandit series for Apple. Ooh. But Terry Gilliam is not signed off on it. Uh, well, that's too bad. He's tried. He's tried, but Takia Watiti's basically. So he's making it his own thing. Yeah. And he wanted, Terry Gilliam wanted to have, he tried to sit down talking about some other stuff and like, hey, this is where, this is the heart of the franchise or what, are, what it should be. And Wookiee's like, all right, cool. I'm making it my own things, which, Good, bad, you know, you kind of want, I don't know how difficult, I've heard Gilliam can be a little difficult sometimes. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I also heard Watiti's very arrogant and can be difficult too. So I, those I, two are probably not exactly the two to be working together anyway. I think though, like that, that makes total sense. Like they're probably like, you know, birds of the same feather. Yeah. Like so it, it is. Although I'm not saying he's anywhere near Gilliam's level. No, he's level. not. But I do think that type of IP, like 
Waikiki, Waititi, whatever. He'll is, probably do good with it. I think he'll do great with it. So Especially I think if our flag means death. Exactly. I, I think you could do that and then amp it up in this genre. I exactly. think I think he'll do fine with it. We'll see. I, I'm telling you, man. I'm glad we're getting more of this franchise, though, or yeah. more of this IP. I think that's an interesting one to choose, and I think if done right, and I think, like you said, I think he's a tentatively a good choice for it. It's just a bummer they couldn't agree. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, over time they. Can, yeah. It, uh, it's not. Um, I didn't know the series mm-hmm. um, Apple. aspect to it. Oh. It makes total sense, and I think there's like a need for that. Um, people in the past, like the past decade, it's like all this IP of you know, um, consistent like storytelling of the same like plot, like it's pushing the same plot forward. Whereas this could probably be more, you know, different time periods and, mm-hmm. you know, episodic, just like spending yeah. time here, spending time here. And it, and there be a through line, but it's not the main drive. I will. And it's it. like I said, it's a series too. Yeah. I will end up enjoying this more than did the film because exactly. I will get what I didn't get from this, but wanted more time. So, basically. you know, now, now granted they could just, F it all up and you know I may yeah. hate it I, but I doubt it I think it'll be more of a Narnia-esque kind of thing and I think that'll work with it yeah. so I, I'm excited about that so JP we talked about it in the beginning so your definitive ranking of Terry Gilliam six movies in um, mine is The Fisher King at five stars yeah that's my number one The Magic of Dr. Parnassus at five stars at number two The Zero Theorem at four and a half stars at number three Brazil at four and a half stars at number four Time Bandits at four stars at number five. Tideland at four stars at number six. So two fives, two four and a halfs, two fours. All right. So I don't know what that averages out to because I'm bad at math. Yeah, I, I don't high, know what to tell you. High praise. Yeah, so for me, I've got Brazil at number one. Brazil at number one. At four and a half. So uh, you don't have any five-star bangers for I you have yet. no five stars. I'm stingy with my five stars and, you know, Brazil could be one though. I'll probably do a rewatch at the end of our reviews and probably change it by the end of the year. Uh, the Fisher King at number two, um, overtaking the Time Bandit at four and a half. We did that live, mm-hmm. um, and then Time Bandits at number three, four star. Uh, Tidelands coming in at number four with four stars. Uh, the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus at five with three and a half stars, and Zero Theorem. At six with three and a half. Nice. Yeah. So next week, we're going to jump into Monty Python and the Meaning of Life and 12 Monkeys. Now, I am curious, let's see, to see what the average rating on those are. So 12 Monkeys has a 3.8. Wow. That's higher that than um, Todd Bandits. Um, sad about Bruce Willis. He yeah. got diagnosed with full-on dementia now. Yeah. Not just whatever it was. Which, that with. was kind of foreseen. Uh, foreseen. Um, yeah. I just don't think we saw it happen in this quick. And But, you know, this goes to show, like, when your brain starts to go, it goes quicker than expected. Yeah. But, you know, I'm really excited about 12 Monkeys, Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, Christopher Plummer. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. Uh, and then Monty Python and the uh, is it Life of Brian, right? Yes, so we did Life of Brian. No, it's Meaning of Life. Meaning. He did not do Life of Brian. Meaning of Life, yes. Um, has a 3.7. And that's got our normal. It's got Terry, Terry Gilliam in various roles. Yeah. Uh, my boy Graham Chapman, who's the main character from My Pots on the Holy Grail. John Cleese, Eric Idle. Freaking love Eric Idle. All right. Uh, Terry Jones, Michael Palin. Yep. You got the full Monty Python crew here. So, um, Oh, Michael Caine. 
Wow. The Michael Caine. Sick. I did not know he was in here. That's interesting. He plays a British soldier. <laughs> uh, okay. So, there we go. There you have it. Uh, that's next week. Um, this week was the Fisher King and um, Tom Bandits. So, now it's time for our news. Or, no, or not our news. A topic or two. Yeah. Yeah, we did the news on Tuesday. So, uh, this one will be pretty short. We're just kind of ranking. IMBD so courteously has given us a... a um, Top tens of each decade. They hand delivered it to us. Yes, we asked for it. They delivered. It was for that important. Uh, mostly, film comes ask, and they come with stuff and with hands. answers. <laughs> answers. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so this is not our personal top ten. That would take a lot of work and time to do. Um, which I mean, I could do. And honestly, looking at the ones we and we're not doing the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties because I haven't seen a bunch of the films on there. Yeah, we're starting in seventies. So we're going to go from the seventies to the twenty tens. And we're going to choose, we're going to read off what they are, and we're going to choose which one we think is the best offering of films. Okay. So, JP, start us off with the 1970s. Okay, hold on. I just passed them. All righty then. I guess this is at top to bottom, so descending order would be... Number 51, so that which okay. starts the 70s. Gotcha. They're not uh, in time order. They're yes. just in rank of how... This is their rank. The way IMBD listed these, is their rank of the best of that era. So The Godfather is their 1972 first pick of the 70s as the best film of the 70s. Yes. And they go in that order. Yeah, and following that, they've got uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's Jack Nicholson, yeah. Came, in, uh, came out in 1975. Uh, next is The Godfather Part 2, uh, 1974. Um Next is Taxi Driver, 76, uh, Star Wars A New Hope, 77, Apocalypse Now, which came out in 79, Alien is next at uh, 1979, and A Clockwork Orange in 1971, followed by Chinatown in 74. And lastly, The Sting in 73. All right, so out of these, which ones have you seen? Uh, I have seen Godfather 1 and 2, Taxi Driver, New Hope. I have honestly, I've I've never fully seen Apocalypse Now. It's a long movie, man. I, 147 minutes, it's not that bad. I, it Maybe the only ones I've seen have been like the... the Director's remat, cuts yeah, or something. Like the, it, they're three-hour cuts or okay, something like that. Yeah. Um, and Clockwork Orange, and that's it. So I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm about to commit a cardinal sin. Yeah, I know that the '70s is like an undefeated year. Looking at this list, just based on iconic, yeah. I know that's gonna be a tough year to beat at the end. I've never seen The Godfather. Never. I've never seen the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, I I've seen never that one. seen The Godfather Part Two. Wow. I have never seen Apocalypse Now. Wow. And I've never seen Chinatown or The Sting. Yeah, I so Sting so Sting just released or not released. It's just it just added to HBO Max and it's been on my list uh, for mm-hmm. a few weeks now. So I think by next week I will uh, probably watch the Sting now that especially since I've seen this list. Yeah. So out of this list, I've only seen a Clockwork Orange, Alien, Star Wars, and Taxi Driver. Okay. So I'm gonna have to. Wa- I know I need to watch The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, and I've seen bits and pieces of them throughout my life, but it never fully invested into it but i know i need to watch the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest that is my type of movie yeah everybody's always told me i needed to watch that 
So that that's gonna be high on my yeah, list. Yeah, one floor so, of the cuckoo's nest is like culturally, um, it's it's very it's pretty impactful mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. Um, yeah. So the seventies, based on this list here, I'm gonna say this is saw nine. I mean, it's a ten for me. Um, I just haven't seen enough of them, but I'm saying based on reputation, what I have seen, yeah. it's a nine. I just don't know anything about Chinatown or this thing. So I at least know a bunch about the other ones. Star Wars alone makes it a nine. So not, I'm joking, but seriously, that's uh. so I, I'm a nine for the seventies. Let's move to the eighties. I'll read those. So in 1980, we were given raging bull, uh, Robert De Niro and 1981, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford. Oof. And 1980 star Wars episode five, the empire strikes back with Harrison Ford. Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher. Uh, 1985, Back to the Future uh, with uh, Christopher Lloyd and uh, Michael J. Fox. Uh, 1986, Aliens with Singori Weaver. Uh, 1984, Once Upon a Time in America. I don't know that one. Die Hard, 1988, Bruce Willis. Blade Runner, 1982 with Harrison Ford. Scarface, uh, 1983 with Al Pacino. And lastly, the Shining, 1980, with Jack Nicholson. Bro, what a damn decade. Holy crap. Did you see the runtime of Once Upon a Time in America? Yeah, 229 minutes. Holy crap. What is this movie? It's De Niro. It's based off a book. Um, IMDb has uh, this description. A former Prohibition Jewish gangster returns to the lowest, Lower East Side Manhattan 35 years later where he must once again confront the ghosts and regrets of his old life. That yeah. seems like a freaking long ride. Three hour long movie. Longer than three hour long. Yeah. Yeah. That, Dang, bro. It looks it looks amazing. That's, uh, a, that's a young De Niro too. That's, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, not as young as some of the other ones. Oh, he looks super young in this. Because he was in the 1970s Taxi Driver. Yeah, I, I understand. He somehow looks younger in this than he does in Taxi Driver. Yeah, he's on he's on here twice too in Raging Bull. Yeah. All right, so uh, lay it on me. What have you seen um, out of this? List? So I have I've seen Lost Ark, I've seen Strike Back, uh, Back to the Future, of course, um, Aliens, Blade Runner, and Die Hard. Um, surprisingly, not seen The Shining. You not seen Scarface either, and I haven't seen Scarface. Okay, so I don't feel as bad about my Godfather yeah. thing. I thought like those are both culturally iconic. No, films. yeah, it, it is. Scarface is great. Scarf Scarface was more or less just like morally, just just never saw it, and it it is morally, it, just like at the time at a time where it was probably more popular, more accessible. I never was Scarface able, was like the Christian bad it. movie. Uh, yeah, and I just realized I've been not talking to Mike. So, uh, but yeah, it it is uh, Luna one that I haven't really. She's licking the fire out of her paws over here. It's yeasty. She's like, ooh, Fritos. <laughs> Yummy. Uh, I've seen, I'm not going to list all that I have seen because he's your short. I have not seen Once Upon a Time in America and that's it. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I've seen the other nine of this film. Uh, so this is to me is a 10. Okay. Um, now, granted, these are more what you call, like everybody's seen these movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I think that also speaks to the testament of these movies. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they are, they, they launched a generation. Yeah. Um, Jim Cameron, you know, James Cameron or whatever, you know, gets his first, not his first, but like takes over for uh, Aliens. Mm-hmm. And Aliens is great. Yeah. It is like some, some say what, what's, what's better, 
alien or aliens and aliens is better aliens to me is better personally um yeah i think uh i definitely i want to add once upon a time in america to my yeah, list also, I, I like most everything de niro does outside of some of his more recent stuff but um yeah. Did you like the Irishman? Tell me about long. De Niro yeah, movies. I really, really did. Yeah, <laughs> I was I talking it. to my dad about. I, I'm I'm discovering my dad was a huge. Well, he's not. He's not like a movie buff. He just watches anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was shocked. My dad saw Fisher King in theaters. Yeah. Like, well. Yeah. My dad. My dad was just sitting. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Um, I talked to him though just the other day about watching the Irishman. He absolutely yeah. loved it. Yeah. I was surprised. Um. But yeah. Um. Of this list, though, like what's what's probably your favorite though of this year? Well, that's that's a stupid question. It's obviously Strikes Back. Uh, yeah, Empire Strikes Back by Landslide. Yeah, I think it's gotta be Blade Runner for me. Yeah, if you take that out of contention though, just because of my love for it, it's a tie between Blade Runner and The Shining. The Shining's really good, man. Yeah, I know. I and it's not like a like it's horror not, yeah. horror movie. It's a psychological thriller I know, for sure. I know this. All right, so let's uh let's move on to the nineties then. All right, this lay is, it on me. This is gonna be a great year. Great yeah. year. Uh in nineteen ninety four we had uh Shawshank Redemption released, um, with our good good boy uh Morgan Freeman. Tim Robbins. Uh, Tim Robbins. Mm-hmm. Um nineteen ninety nine Fight Club. Gosh, so good. With uh, Edward Norton and Brad Pitt. And Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Gosh, I forget that. That was a weird, weird time. Babyface, angel face. Um in 1990, we had Goodfellows uh, with Ray Liotta and the whole other cast. Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro. Everybody. De Niro's been on every decade so far. Yeah. Um, in 1997, we had L.A. Confidential, oh, which I had gosh. never heard of in my life Are until I'm reading this. Are you freaking serious? Yeah. And it, honestly, though, like this description, I mean, that feels like something I would have seen. L.A. Confidential is a phenomenal movie. Okay. I'll add it to the list. Uh, in 1994, we have Pulp Fiction. Uh, 95 was Toy Story, our first animated. I know. Um, uh, coming in 95. Uh, sh- uh, 93, we had Schindler's List. And uh, 1991, Silence of the Land. That's pretty low for Silence, like of that list. Mm-hmm. Um, 1999, we had The Matrix, and then 98, Saving Private Ryan. What a loaded year, too. Yeah. Bro. Oh, man. Out of 10, what are you giving it? I don't think I I didn't get to rank the 80s. Yeah, so I'm 9. It was, it was probably a 9, nine 10, and then I'm probably a 9.5 for the 90s. So I think, in retrospect, I'm probably going to rank the 70s or the 80s. I mean... Or the seventies. Rank the seventies probably nine. Nine and a half for the eighties. Eighties. And the nineties probably gotta be a ten for me. So what draws it back for me is I enjoy the Shawshank Redemption, but I think it's hella overrated. Um storytelling though, man, that is that is like top tier. No, it is. I just something about it. Like I've seen it five well, or six it's times. Because yeah, exactly. Because it is replayed. The most of probably any movie. Yeah. So maybe I've just lost some of the touch for it. But, um, and another one I think is a little overrated is honestly The Silence of the Lambs, um, which beat out our boy now have an extra grudge against it because it beat out The Fisher King and edged (laughs) out Robin Williams because he lost to uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. 
Uh, that adds a whole fun layer to the Fisher King, though. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, Silence of Lamb, I think, is overrated. And honestly, I think Schindler's List is a little overrated. Jesus. It's a great film. They're all great films. When I say they're overrated, I mean, they're still, they warrant the respect. But I'm saying, like, I just don't know. Like I said, nine and a half. That's great praise. So overrated, I'm talking about just by a marginal hair. But, like, to me, L.A. Confidential, Fight Club, Goodfellas. I say Goodfellas could carry this. No, I'd say Pulp Fiction could carry this. Oh, Good Goodfellas is a better movie than Pulp Fiction. Oh, no. Wow. No. Yeah. I love Goodfellas, but, like, no. Better movie than I mean, Good Toy Pulp. Story could carry this. I mean, uh, yeah. cultural impact. And The Matrix. I mean, my gosh. I mean, goodness gracious. Saving Private Ryan is one of the greatest war movies ever made. I mean, like, man. And like, and then like I said, Schindler's List and Silence of the Lambs and Shawshank are all great. I think maybe I've just seen them too many times that overplay like schools show them and stuff like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, nine and a half for me for the nineties. And if I had to choose my favorite of this bunch, mm, I'm probably going to go Pulp Fiction for um, the secondary. It's hard to put Toy Story in this film. Obviously I could watch Toy Story, man. I could any of the other rest of these in terms of watch rewatchability. Yeah, but of, um, of like, we just want to talk about Film, I'd probably say Pulp Fiction and then either I'd probably a Fight Club, probably Fight Club Oof, okay. or The Matrix shit. I don't know. I say you, mine, mine are going to be Goodfellas and Fight Club. It's probably the most toxic male choices I could probably ever give you. Yeah. But now, if I was going on pure rewatchability, it would be Toy Story and uh, The Matrix. Just rewatchability. No, rewatch is definitely the two that I gave you. Goodfellas no. and Fight Club. Those are like I, I could I like easy the, rewatches. See, I'm thinking like comfort films, like something I could just sit back and just be like. <sighs> That's the Matrix and Toy Story. Same thing for me with that too. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let's go to the 2000s. Um, we'll start first with uh, The Dark Knight, 2008. Christopher Nolan, uh, Christian Bell, Batman movie. Uh, Heath Ledger. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, 2003. Big O. Mornstein, Peter Jackson, Elijah Wood. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, 2001. Same. The Departed, Martin Scorsese, Matt Damon, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson. Memento, Christopher Nolan again, uh, and Guy Pierce. Wait, did he do Memento, Christopher Nolan? Yeah. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, Christopher Nolan did like half these movies. Yeah. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, 2002. Uh, Emil, Emile, 2001. Wally, 2008. The Pianist with Adrian Brody, 2002. Mm, I need to watch that one. It's so good. I know. And I Gladiator with Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix in 2000. Um, so this is like, obviously, I've seen all of these films except for the one, Emil, um, which, yeah. shocking, it's on here. I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel that I see this getting mentioned a lot. Um, I guess I'm going to need to watch this. It It has, honestly, it has some Gillian vibes. I don't even know who either of the actors are. On the yeah, cover. I, this I feel like this has got you written all over it. Okay, I'll have to give it a go, I guess. Um, so out of these, I mean, it's amazing. It shows the testament of what a franchise Lord of the Rings is that you put all three in there. But all three were Oscar winners. Yeah. All three are culturally significant, like vaulted Hall of Fame, like Mount Rushmore movies. So. <laughs> she losing it over there. Yeah, I have an issue with this list though because the order of this list is unacceptable. <laughs> hey, listen, IMBD, IMBD is like the undisputed like lord of film ranking. I could 
It just I di- I disagree. What's better than the Dark Knight? I mean, like the Dark Knight. I would say. No, I just I mean like the Lord of the Rings ranking side of this. Oh boy, I'm looking ahead. I'm gonna have some real issues with the next one. I bet. Have you looked at uh, it? No, but oh, I'm, I'm staying. I'm staying focused right okay. now. Okay. I I just think you don't put. You can't put two towers. Is the second one really the worst of the three? To me, yes. Oh my gosh. To me, it's to me it's Fellowship Return Two Towers. And see, for me, is Two Towers Return Fellowship. Yeah, well, that's why we make a great team. That does. <laughs> but anyway, for me, I'm going, even though I live this, I'm going to go with a nine. Yeah, I th- I think nine for me as well, um, solely because it's oversaturated with... Uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. With, that, and But I get it. You can't yeah. not do that, but that does take a little bit away. And I haven't seen the one. Yeah, and we, we got, you know, for the decade, we got another animated with Wally. Yeah, and Wally is good. I feel like Wally it, is. Okay, here's the thing amazing. with Wally, too. It was very slept on when it came out and wasn't like, I mean, it was universally everybody liked yeah. it, but it wasn't like a, you know, oh my gosh, it's Toy Story, Lion King, yada, yada, yada. But I mean, like as we talked about before the show, it's Criterion yeah. released a cut I, of it now. Like, Wally is amazing. I have an emotional connection to Wally. Same. Um, I was traveling with, uh, a ministry group same and in high school same um and i had somebody download this movie for me on my same. my little ipod same really this is a weird story <laughs> i know <laughs> and uh yeah i just i watched it on repeat we we're traveling and everything and same it was just it was very emotional where'd you travel was to on, was with eddie james yeah and jason upton yeah no, yeah. not Jason Upton. Oh, I traveled with Eddie James. I'm just kidding. I didn't do any of that. That's your freaking... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, I had Being you for a second there. Forced, yeah. I was like, they made did. us all watch Wally on repeat. No, it was not forced. Yeah. But Wally is amazing. Wally Love is really it. good. Um, And The Dark Knight is really good. So choose one. Favorite of this list. Mm. Now I'm going to exclude kind of like the uh, Empire Strikes Back for that one decade. I'm going to exclude Lord of the Rings from here. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say, honestly, my gut wants to go with The Departed, but I'm going to go with Dark Knight. That's good, because I wanted The Departed. Yeah. And have you seen The Pianist? No. Okay. I, I, I didn't know that's, if you said like, That's the only one on here I haven't seen. Or, you see, I haven't seen Emil. Okay. Uh, yeah, The Pianist I'm, I'm is Molly. freaking amazing. I'm Molly. I'm, uh, and Gladiators, freaking! I didn't, I didn't know. I thought it was the nineties. I did not know it was a two thousand. Yeah. Uh, but no, Gladiators, fantastic. I feel like I yeah. feel like it's wrong not even choosing it as my first, second, or third. But man, it's great. So nine, nine for me for the two thousands. All right, read this bullshit off to me because oh my gosh, <laughs> I have an issue with multiple of these. Really? Okay. Um. So yeah, going into twenty ten. In 2012, we had the Avengers with that whole slew of Wait, actors. Wait, well, you're missing one. I did. You're missing. Am I? Oh no, I I started one too far. Yeah, you did. Um, you've got. Uh, I object. The Avengers in 2012. Object. Okay. Uh, you've got the Dark Knight Rises. Object. 2012. Um, Inception in 2010. Concur. Uh, Toy Story three. Object. In 2010. The Separation, which I had never even heard no, of. I don't know that movie, so uh, abstain. Uh, the Social Network. Concur. 
Okay, good. Yeah, obviously their ranking on here is low for it to be on there. Um, in 2012, you got Life of Pi. Concur. Uh, 2012, Argo. Concur. You think? Yeah, I w- I like I I understand it should be on here. I I get that, but I'm not as high on it as a lot of people were. Argo is one of those movies that I hear so much good stuff about that for some reason I feel like I've seen it because I heard so much good. But it's not. But it's not. I found it to be a little pretentious and boring. I say it's beautiful and well acted. It's almost like not warranted, like the praise that it gets. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, and I think that's why. Yeah, I don't ever Uh, care to watch it again. Coming in 2011, we had uh, Drive. I want to concur with this. Oh, it is a concur. No, no, it's a great film. But I'm telling you, like you're telling me, I, I love this movie. But you're telling, do I think it warrants being on the top 10 of the 2010s? No, I do not. Okay, 2010, uh, you had the Black Swan. That's the rest I, I of our list. Her. So it drive, then, like, what? what is... I don't know. Like, this is the only decade on here that I kind of wish I made my own list. It's so, here's the issue, Like, though. the Avengers doesn't... Need, now, you could argue cultural significance. Sure, yeah. the Avengers. But the Dark Knight Rises has absolutely no business being on here, and Toy Story 3 has absolutely no business being on here. And just because I've never even heard of it, I don't think separa- separation has any business being on here. Like, what the hell is this movie even? Uh, I think it's an international movie. Uh, married couple are faced with a difficult decision to improve the lives for their child by moving to another country or to stay in Iran and look after a de- uh, deteriorating parent who has Alzheimer's disease. Um, it is. It looks to be more of a documentary-based like style. Um, it's a Sony Picture Classic, so obviously there's some clout with that. What um, years does this go to? The 2010s to 2020, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that is weird because Birdman, Birdman should be on there over some of these. Are you how kidding old me? Is this list. I I do find get it, out, get out should be on well, there. So again, when was this arrival list? should be on there? I'm about to start screaming. When, I'm about to start. When was this list made? I don't know. Okay. I saw IMBD's because thing. the movies like hey, I'm gonna go scroll because I, I would be surprised if this movie was made after 2013 or tw- 2013. It doesn't feel like this. This there's nothing. It was updated in 2018. Okay, that's a little fishy. So yeah, Toy Story three does not belong on here. Um, I have big issue about that because I mean. I I didn't care for Toy Story three. Um, I mean, it was I guess, fine. I guess because it felt at the time probably. Mad- <gasps> Whiplash the- and Mad Max. Yeah, bro. F this twenty twenty tens list. <laughs> it's broken. So let's just go. What do you rank in this list? Five. <laughs> it's an F for me. It's not good. <laughs> we get the stars. We're going. We're There's another numbers. IMBD list that has. We're going straight to letters. Drive is the 34th ranked film of the 2010s. That that's some bull crap. So that's what I'm saying. Like J- Django Unchained, Wolf of Wall Street, The Revenant. Oh my gosh! Yeah, something tells me this list was not actually updated. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Uh oh. Uh oh. What is this? Just some noobs list. <laughs> <laughs> is this this isn't IMDb? It is IMDb, but it's it's but just some users. Omega Rob. Yeah, so we just Public. went on Letterbox. 
<laughs> you son of a gun. Oh my gosh. He had me going though until I got to his shitty well, 2010. This is the bit, guys. This is the bit. Welcome to, you know. It's the top one. It's literally the top thing. You type in tops of each decade. This is what IMBD shoves first. Oh my gosh. Omega Rob, whoever you are, your 2010s list is ass. Oh my like gosh. you had me until then. Like, wow. Tyler, it, is this you? It became very sus. Very sus, but... Oh, my gosh. What a terrible taste. I I enjoyed this experiment, though. I did. I'm a, Now I'm going to have to go find a real yeah. list. Like, Stay tuned for next week's episode. I bet they're like Rolling Stone or something. Like something legit that's published in a magazine. Like probably Vulture or somewhere like that. Probably has something gosh. like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Omega was... Rob. What a douchebag, man. Wow, you <laughs> suck. This is this is why this is why we're just getting behind the curtain a little bit. Uh, this is why we we need to uh to to talk this stuff out sooner. Yeah, so well, that I, I can do proofing. Yeah, I, I, I posted you, you threw this. out the ideas and I'll proof it. Hey, I tell you what though, you might not have made it that far though. Like I didn't, I didn't look at the twenty. I was like, wow, these are perfect up until <laughs> this point. Made sense. No, I would have, I would have done exactly what I've been. Asking of like when was this updating and seeing the Omega Rob at the top here <laughs> under top ten best films from each decade starting from the twenties to now. Omega Rob, Jesus. Maybe Christ. Omega Rob founded IMBD. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's on staff over there. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> anyway. Overall, though, this was a decent list. It was a pretty good list till the twenty tens. Twenty tens made it very sus. Yes. So uh, shame, shame on Omega Rob. Uh, all right. Uh, you have anything to add? Yeah, I think uh, I think nineties or uh, yeah, I don't know. I need to go back and watch some older movies. How about movies. this? How about we plan? How about for next week's topic or two? Okay, let's come up. That's a whole week to plan it of oh. our personal top tens from what we've seen of the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, twenty ten. What if we did top five? Top five's fine. I'm yeah. going top five of the seventies on. Yeah, that'd be too much work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so top five would be good. Yeah, top five's good. And we'll, that way we can do our own personal list. Yes. So, I like that idea. And then one honorable mention from each. Yeah. But like, that doesn't mean it has to if be you like have a, it. So like when I say top five, this is like what you feel like is like something that you could argue should be in the top five. Not like a weird one that you okay. know would never be. But the honorable mention can be anything sure. from that era. I'm good with that. Okay. So this has been your in review and a topic or two. Take 16, I think. Are we up to our 16? Yeah, this is Which 16. Is actually, <laughs> take 16, episode 17. That pilot zero, or that Throwing pilot us off. really threw me off. Um, but about to just change it and just backdate it all. Just go no. through each one. No, and just, just delete. Tell, just tell your brain that this is oh, the 16th gosh, episode. Then. Uh, so next week, we'll be back uh, on yep. Tuesday with our What's New. And then on Thursday... For another interview and a topic or two, we'll be covering 12 Monkeys and the life or meaning of life. I keep wanting to say life of, life Brian. of Brian, but it's the meaning of life. Yeah. So I am Jonathan. Uh, I'm going to go 100% Hogwarts Legacy. And I will have like 25 movies y'all still be listening to from Tuesday's episode of next week. Mm. Be so. checking those letterbox reviews. Yeah. yeah gosh, I'm so still <laughs> behind the eight ball there. All right. I will see y'all later. See ya. See ya.